Let's pray together. Our Father, we long for the fulfillment of that promise now. That those who are citizens of heaven on earth, gathering together in the name of Jesus, that we would have the presence of Jesus that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would govern us, that you would show us more of yourself, that we would be drawn to you more and more, that you would be the, the love of our life. Oh God, I pray that now as we gather, you would speak, speak your word to us, build up your church. As you have promised to do, Lord Jesus, you will build your church. Do it again this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in a sermon series entitled 2020 Vision. The month of February, we focused mainly on what leaders do as part of that vision. In the month of March, we're focusing on what the people do as part of that vision. And as we talked about a, a church gathering, we asked the question, when the church gathers, what does the church gather to do? What are the marks of a church that assembles? And throughout church history, Christians have given three answers. What makes a true church a, a true church is three things. A place where the word is truly preached. A place where the ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism are truly administered and a place where church discipline is truly exercised. So last week we looked at the, the word preached. When people gather as an assembly of Jesus, we gather to hear the voice of Jesus by the spirit of Jesus address the church of Jesus. It's a gathering of Jesus there for Jesus to hear his voice. He shepherds us, he speaks to us. And now we're looking at this week, church discipline. Is that something totally separate from hearing the voice of Jesus, having the presence of Jesus? We're going to see that there is so much in common as these two things come together. So in our text, we're looking at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, and we're gonna see two things. In the movement of this passage, there's two movements. There is a process, verses 15 to 17, and there is a promise, verses 18 to 20. We're gonna look at the process first, then we're gonna look at the promise, and then we're gonna look at some other major texts on church discipline and see how the message comes together. So let's look first at the process of church discipline in verses 15 to 17. What you see in this process is that it's first one to one, then two or three witnesses, then the entire church, and then you make a declaration about that person under discipline. So what I wanna do to summarize all of this is I wanna have a focus here on seven points. I actually have eight in the manuscript, but seven that I wanna see in terms of let's get this process right. So first, the first thing you see is the flow 
of the process. Notice that it starts intentionally small and then it expands and escalates from there. Starting small, one to one, if he listens, you've gained your brother, but if he doesn't, then you expand two or three witnesses, then you expand the whole church. Now, why do you stop or expand? The focus of this, the flow of this is to go small and then big, and the focus of it, second, is repentance. The focus of this process is repentance. Notice that there is a confrontation concerning some sin, and the process expands and escalates only if there's no repentance. See that, for example, verse 15. If he listens to you, then you've gained your brother. Process is over. Doesn't escalate and expand anymore. But, verse 16, if he does not listen, then you go to the next step. Two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, verse 17, then you take the next step. If he refuses to listen even to the church, verse 17, then you make the declaration. So you notice the flow of this process is going to expand, but only if the focus on repentance is not met. So flow, focus, what about the function of the parts of this process? The function of the two to three witnesses, the function of the church, what's happening here? Notice that the function of these witnesses matches this focus on repentance. The two or three witnesses are not those witnessing the original sin that happened. The sin in question isn't questionable. It's, it's obvious, it's something that's outward and serious, and therefore it's not in question. What's in question is, why aren't you repenting of this? You've gone from what's normal to what's not normal, and you're not repenting. And so now what's happening is that when you bring one or two others along, now there's two or three witnesses. So you're the one witness, and you have, you have witnessed a lack of repentance. If you take one along, now there's two witnesses. If you take two along, now there's three witnesses. And what they're witnessing is not the original sin, but a lack of repentance. If they witness repentance, process is over. If they witness a lack of repentance, process continues. Now this two or three witnesses, why is that so important? We're going back to the Old Testament guidelines for establishing any judicial charge of a process. Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 requires two or three witnesses in a judicial process to establish a charge. Therefore, this quoted in Matthew 18, 16 and 2 Corinthians 13, 1 is part of due process in the church. And as they witness repentance, process is over, gained your brother. If they witness a lack of repentance, process continues to the church. So what is fourth? So you got the flow of the process, expanding and escalating because of the focus of the process, which is on repentance, then the function of the two or three witnesses, witness repentance or lack of it, 
And now, if there's no repentance, what's the function of the church? When it says, tell it to the church. The church here is joining this pursuit of repentance. It is empowering and supercharging this pursuit of repentance. The whole church is getting involved in praying and pursuing repentance, coming along and saying, how can you not repent of this? Adding its community pressure and pursuit to say, this is not right. This is not what the church is about. This, this is not a place where in a gathering of Jesus, rebellion against Jesus, as if it's no big deal, cannot be the norm. So the whole church adds its voice in this pursuit of repentance. And if the person refuses to listen to the church, verse 17, then number five, makes, the whole church makes its declaration. You see it in verse 17. Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. So just summarize where we've been. Flow of the mess, flow of the process, and then the focus of the process, the flow expands and escalates, focuses on repentance, function of the witnesses, to witness repentance or lack thereof, function of the church to join this process of pursuing repentance. If there's none, at the end of this process, what is the meaning of this message, this declaration, treating you as a Gentile and tax collector? What the church is saying in this moment is that there has been an act of transfer from one place, one sphere, to the other. The people in the church are saying we're part of the kingdom of God as children of God. What you'd be saying as a Gentile or tax collector is now you're being transferred to the other sphere, the only other one that exists, which is that where you're not in the kingdom of God not a child of God. For Jews, their kind of shorthand term for this would be Gentile, not part of the people of God, or tax collector, you're a Jew, so you think you'd be part of the people of God, but a tax collector is working for the hated Romans, so you're a traitor to the Jews and not treated as part of the people of God. Jesus is here saying, what's happening at the end of this process is that you're saying, you're no longer part of the church, part of the assembly, part of the kingdom of God and the children of God. So what actually is being declared is something like a deconversion message. Think about what conversion is. Colossians chapter one, verse 12. We give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance in the saints in light. How did you get to be part of the saints in light? He delivered you from the dominion of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So here, we were part of the dominion of darkness. Conversion means transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, part of the saints in light. What church discipline is, is saying, you're not part of the saints in light. You're part of the dominion 
of darkness. Your conversion testimony said, I'm part of this. The church discipline testimony says, no, you're actually part of this. Now, let me be clear. This is a moment of great gravity, but do not think that somehow when the church gathers and says this, that somehow the church is enacting the judgment to come. We don't do that. God makes the judgment to come. The church doesn't enact the judgment to come, it simply displays the judgment we believe will come. What it is, is it's this person seeing a trailer for their future life. They get to see, this is what we believe is going to happen. That you're going to be cast out as goats, not part of the sheep. That he's gonna say, depart from me, I never knew you. Be warned, this is what we think is happening. But, please understand, when the church makes that message, the church is not actually enacting that judgment to come, just displaying it so they can see it, and the intent is always restoration. We want that person to see what is going to come and wake up to that reality, repent of it, and be restored. On the other side of church discipline, the goal is always restoration. Think about 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Discipline has taken place, and now Paul says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So when the church votes, makes this declaration, notice that it's the assembly that does it. It's not an apostle that does it. It's not a pastor that does it. It's the assembly that makes the vote and it has to be majority vote. In other words, it can't be a few leaders that have something against this, against this person like a personality clash or anything like that. It's the whole church adding their voice to this and saying, this is what's happening. And the majority, as they make this declaration, what you're wanting is for that person to wake up and repent of their sin and come back. And that's happened, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough so that now you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. Every act of church discipline, when you make that declaration, this is what we believe your future will be. And we're begging you that that would not be. So after church discipline has happened, we continue the process of pleading for repentance. Come back. Come back, join the saints in light. And the only way is not to do an end run around repentance, saying sin doesn't matter, but to repent. And Paul's saying once that happens, 
Discipline has done its work. Now embrace. Now reaffirm your love, your brotherly, sisterly, family love. Discipline has done its work. So, here's my question. When you're making this declaration and you say to somebody, this is what we believe your future will be. So we're casting you out so that that would not be a reality. You would repent. What if we get that wrong? What if somehow the church would get discipline wrong and send the wrong message and spiritually, in essence, abuse someone? What if we get it wrong? That's where the promise of this process comes into its own. Look at verses 18 to 20. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Notice Jesus is not just continuing the conversation about church discipline, he's actually advancing it. So you got the two or three here, like the two or three witnesses. What's happening in this moment is Jesus is saying, when you do this, you're not on your own, I'm with you in it. Now what is this language about binding and loosing? What is that? It's actually going back to a text in Matthew 16, two chapters earlier, where Jesus explains it. Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. Let me read it. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is an incredibly important passage. Think about this. In the Gospels, the word church only occurs twice, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And yet, in Matthew's Gospel, the word kingdom occurs 49 times. So church only occurs twice, kingdom 49 times. Yet, in Paul's epistles, church only appears, or kingdom only appears 14 times, and church, the word church appears 43 times. So there's almost a complete reversal. Why? The answer is right here, where you get church and kingdom coming together. Do you notice here the language? Jesus is saying, I will build my church, and the way that I'm gonna do it is I'm gonna give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So now this church, this gathered assembly of the citizens of heaven on earth, Jesus is saying, I am giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and when you use them, here's the promise, heaven and earth will come in alignment. They will be in sync. Do you see the promise? Whatever 
you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It does not say sometimes there'll be an alignment. Most of the time, usually it says whatever you bind will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. Earth and heaven will come together. Now, how does exactly that happen? How is this working together? Does the church govern itself, make a decision, and then heaven ratifies it, approves it, just kind of rubber stamps it? That is not what this text says. The key to understanding what's happening in both Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 is that these participles are actually past perfect, which is a rare form. Here's what it means. I'll, I'll translate it so that you get the meaning. Whatever you bind on earth shall already have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall already have been loosed in heaven. See the point? Jesus is saying not that you're going to make a decision and then heaven's going to say, okay, It's that because of my presence, I am going to be there to govern and guide this decision so that it's exactly what heaven's will is. Whatever you loose will already have been loosed in heaven because because of my presence and power, I'm going to guide you to it. I'm going to make sure that my will that is in heaven is done here on earth. How are you going to do that, Jesus? Answer, I am there among them. Where two or three are gathered in my name, in the context here of church discipline, I'm there. My presence, my power is going to be there to govern and guide you. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to be there to govern and guide the decisions. When you reach this point in this hard process and you have to make a declaration you don't want to make, I'll be there to show you and prove to you you won't get it wrong. I'm more committed to building my church than you are. I'm more committed to telling the truth about the future than you are. That is the promise. The promise is that Jesus will guide their decisions to accord with his. He will guide and govern their decisions with his presence and with his power. In the other major text on church discipline in the New Testament, you get this same promise of Jesus' presence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, Paul says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, Paul says, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Same way of saying tax collector and Gentile. You're no longer part of the saints in light. You're part of the dominion of darkness. Satan, who is the ruler of this world, and the whole world lies in the grip of the evil one, saying you're now in that sphere. And and Paul says, to me, this is the clearest verse on congregational authority in the whole Bible. Here's an apostle saying, I'm not delivering this person. My, My spirit, I'll be with you in spirit, 
but I'm not doing it. You are to do it. The keys of the kingdom are not some special thing that he only gave apostles. He gave them to the gathered assembly. And Paul says, you're the assembly. When you assemble, you are to deliver this person over to Satan, but it will not be you independent and isolated from Jesus. The power of the Lord Jesus, when you gather in the name of Jesus, will be there. And he will be there to guide and govern your decision to make sure you don't get it wrong. There's too much at stake, in other words, for the church to play church with the keys of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, when I give you these keys, there's a condition and it's a good one. I'll be with you when you use them. I'll make sure that you're not going to abuse these. That's the promise. So the, the point together from Matthew 16, 18, 1 Corinthians 5 is this. The church is a gathered assembly of Jesus that has the keys of Jesus' kingdom, the promise of Jesus' guidance, and the power of Jesus' presence. His power and presence will be there to guide and govern the church when they use his keys. That is what church discipline is. So in application, here's the question. Do we understand then what is membership, what is discipline, and what is your job calling? The calling of the congregation. What are you supposed to do? First, here's what church membership is. Church membership, this is what Jonathan Lehman says in his excellent book on church discipline, church membership is the churches, that is the assembly of Jesus, the public affirmation of an individual's profession of faith in Jesus. And it's that individual's decision to submit to the church in affirming and overseeing that. You're submitting to that kind of leadership and accountability. Now, a Christian, therefore, is somebody who's part of the kingdom of God, a citizen of heaven. And a church does not make someone a citizen of the kingdom. It is required to recognize those who already are citizens of the kingdom. In other words, that's why when we go through the membership process, what we do is we interview and, and make sure you're a Christian. Make sure you're really a citizen of the kingdom. The, the church becomes like a, a passport, kingdom passport stamp that says, yes, we affirm you are a member of the citizen of heaven. That's what the church does. Doesn't make that, declares that. Now, an individual citizen obviously doesn't have the authority to stamp their own passport. An embassy has to stamp that passport in the same way a Christian can't baptize himself, can't give themselves the Lord's Supper. A church is doing that, saying you're part of this. We stamp your passport. So what we do in a local church, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Jesus' name to officially affirm and oversee one another's profession of faith in Jesus and in his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel 
ordinances. Did you know that was your job description? To affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus and in his kingdom. That's why we gather through gospel preaching, gospel ordinances, gospel life on life, we're affirming and overseeing our membership in Jesus' kingdom. So then, what is discipline? The act of discipline or excommunication is the act of removing an individual from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's table. What we would be saying is that somebody's kingdom passport has been revoked. Saying you're not really part of the kingdom of heaven, not really part of Jesus' assembly. That's what church discipline says. Revoking someone's passport is such a huge thing. What you'd be saying is we can no longer vouch for you as a Christian. You're not part of the saints in light. You're walking in darkness, part of the dominion of darkness. You're not walking in repentance. You're not fighting the fight of faith. You've made peace with sin. You don't share the glorious future for which we're eagerly awaiting. You're not abiding in the vine as the branch. On the last day, we believe Jesus will separate you away from the sheep to the goats where there's everlasting torment. It is a moment where we say it is loving to be as clear as possible about what we believe, about somebody's eternity. And when we fear, oh Jesus, I don't want to get this wrong, his promise is, I won't let you. I'll be there. My power, my presence will guide and govern you when you say that, when you use those keys. So, that's what membership is. Officially affirm and oversee one another's profession of faith. And that's what discipline is, revoking somebody's passport, not stamping it, saying, actually, we don't affirm your profession of faith. We believe you're part of the dominion of darkness. What does that mean for our calling as a congregation? What is our congregational job description? As we oversee and affirm one another's profession of faith, long before we get to the step of corrective discipline, there has to be formative discipleship happening. Discipleship such that you continue in your original love for Jesus. Like we said last week, what we are gathered to do, hear the voice of Jesus in the power of Jesus, in gospel worship with gospel ordinances, what we're doing together is trying with all of our might to maintain our love for Jesus to be a place where we gather in the name of Jesus because we love Jesus and we say to each other, sin is a big deal. That's why when you talk about what we should be doing, do you think that the preacher is the only one that's talking to the membership? Hebrews chapter 
3. It's one of the most important texts in a congregational job description. Indeed, maybe one of the main ones. Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's what church discipline would be saying. You've fallen away from the living God. He says, take care. Isn't that what a church does? Take care over this. How do you do that? But exhort one another every day. It doesn't say pastor. It says exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Here last week, original confidence, first love, original love. Hold that firm to the end. That's how you make it to heaven. Hold that firm. And he's saying, you won't hold it firm if you're not aware of how deceitful sin is. When it gets in there and it's promising you these pleasures and now suddenly, rather than being satisfied in Jesus, you're being duped by the false lies of the passing pleasure of sin, someone has gone over to that and they're hardened in that and they're not repenting of that. Let me try to give you two word pictures in closing. First one. This week I was listening to BBC Radio and for some reason they had this segment, I don't ever listen to BBC Business. They had a section on business and they were talking about why do people stay in workplaces that they hate? And they were talking about dysfunctional, hostile workplaces in such a way that it just becomes normal and people accept it. And then they started giving examples. They gave an example of in a workplace, in a meeting, they'd be gathered together giving ideas of what they could do, and if the boss didn't like one of the ideas, he would take some tape, tear it off, and put it on their mouth if he didn't like the idea. And everybody was like, okay. Like, how did that become normal? Yeah, this is a place where if you say something that's not a good idea, you get your mouth taped shut. How is that normal? How do you come to accept that? There was another example they gave of where this workplace got so hostile that people were actually provoking each other, pushing each other, and one person actually bit their coworker. Several people witnessed it and went on with their day like nothing was wrong. Go get another cup of coffee. Yeah, somebody just bit somebody. This is a kind of place where it's normal to bite people you disagree with. What is happening there is that something has become so normal that it's become like leaven. It's worked its way through the whole workplace so that people look at that and say, no big deal, it's normal. 
And in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul's talking about church discipline, he's saying, don't you understand that a little bit of leaven, this sin, if you don't address it and clean it out, a little bit of leaven is going to work its way through the whole lump of dough. It's going to be like cancer that spreads through the whole body. The church cannot be a place where when people sin and they're in rebellion against Jesus and not repent, the church says, that's normal. That's what happens here. What if the church actually took sin and vice as seriously as the world takes a virus right now where you go to Target and can't get any toilet paper because they're so concerned, and rightly so, about a virus spreading. The church says it's even more important and severe when this vice of sin spreads like a virus because this will just maybe make you sick, maybe kill you, this will kill you forever. How seriously should the church take the spread of this vice and virus called sin? Other word picture. What actually is the church? What should we be seeing? What should we be saying? One of my favorite things to do, oddly enough, is to take my dog to the bathroom. That sounds really strange, let me explain it. When Kaiser has to go to the bathroom, he goes out, open the sliding door, he goes out, and then after a certain time, I call him back in, come on, Kaiser, get some ducky. Now this is confusing. Originally, we gave him this jerky that was like duck jerky. They've changed it at Costco since then, and it's chicken jerky, but I don't want to confuse my dog by calling it something else, so we still call it ducky. And he runs in, really happy, tail wagging, ready for his ducky, and whenever he goes down to go to the bathroom, our two cats, Calvin and Hobbes, will join him. They will come, not because they love to watch Kaiser go to the bathroom, but because they know there's Ducky and they love it too. So here's Kaiser waiting to get his. Here's the two cats jumping up on the ledge, waiting to get theirs because they know I give them a little bit. And like everybody is so sold out when Kaiser goes to the bathroom to get this Ducky. The church is a place where when Jesus, when we gather in the name of Jesus, we gather for Jesus to get him, and the whole church is saying, this is what life is about. Nothing better than gathering to get Jesus. And if there are people who have lost their original love, not holding fast that original sense of confidence, when you sing about Jesus and hear the voice of Jesus in preaching, what happens is the church gathers and says, we are satisfied with Jesus. There's nothing better than this, and that bodes well for eternity because there you get all of Jesus forever. So let's be a place, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession to declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is a place where we are sold out for Jesus and we gather for him. Let's pray. Father, I ask, I ask that we would be a place 
that says there's a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. To be a place where rebellion against Jesus that's hard-hearted and unrepentant will not be normal. We won't say, that's not a big deal. But we will take deathly serious the spread of this virus called sin. And we will be a place where we speak to one another, exhort one another, encourage one another to say where Jesus is proclaimed and sung and displayed, we say the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. In Jesus' name, amen.